0: Welcome to the Joe Cunningham show. This is Joe Cunningham. News talk 96.5 KPL 232 1542. If you want to call in and be part of the program, the show notes are now live on KPL 96.5.com. You can check out the most important stories of the day. And of course, right now, the big story of the day Is the weather that uh, we're kind of kind of watching that. Of course, you've heard the weather forecasts all day, uh, often on showers, some of them heavy. Uh, I know that this morning, several people trying to drive got hit with some blinding rain and it caused a lot of accidents, including in and around the Karen Crow area where I live. Uh, Not too much happening right now, but it is after school traffic and there is still rain going on in the Lafayette area. Y'all please be careful. Uh, The good news is with the rain, with the possibility of localized flooding, sandbag locations are open. We do have that story up at KPL965.com. Lafayette Consolidated Government working uh, to make sure that those areas stay stocked. Uh, In Lafayette, North District site at 400 Dugot Road, uh, located off North University and Picard Park. Those are two sandbag locations. Uh, in Broussard at City Hall, Deer Meadows Subdivision and Broadview Drive. In Karen Crow, the community center, uh, the, that, those sandbag uh, locations are open, as well as Duson Park at South A Street in Duson, and the Public Works Department in Scott. Uh, and 333 South Lervier La- uh, Road in Youngsville. Uh, those are the sandbag locations, LCG working to make sure that those are open, and you are able to get sandbags if you need them. Now, the good news is this is just rain. We do not have a very active tropical forecast right now. Currently, there are three areas the National Hurricane Center are looking at, but there's very little chance of them developing, and there's certainly no chance of anything severe hitting Louisiana or pretty much the rest of the Gulf Coast in the next several days. Uh the first disturbance which is uh off in the uh deep into the Atlantic uh, a wide area of disturbed weather has formed centered several hundred miles east southeast of the uh, I'm sorry uh a tropical wave located several hundred miles uh west of Cabo Verde Islands no chance of that developing into anything significant over the next several days the second disturbance is, Disturbances east of the Windward Isles, Uh, currently disorganized, but the National Hurricane Center does think that environmental conditions could become more conducive for development in a few days. When the system approaches the Windward Isles or the South uh, Caribbean Sea, The National Hurricane Center gives that system about a 20% chance of developing over the next five days. And the third system they're looking at is in the eastern tropical part of the Atlantic, also a 20% chance of development over the next five days. But again, a very disorganized system and nothing posing a threat to us right now. In fact, the hurricane season has been very quiet now, knock on wood, It stays that way. Uh, The the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration did downgrade uh, their predicted severity of the hurricane season by one named storm. But we are in the peak of the season. September, going into September, going through and into October, that's really the peak of the hurricane season. That's where we can expect a lot of the severe storms to start making their way through the Atlantic and coming uh, into the Caribbean, into the Gulf and causing some issues. So please, please, please keep an eye on the tropics and keep an eye on the local weather because the rain is expected to be all over the place over the next several days. 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation. Now that we've gotten that out of the way, I do want to go to what I think is the biggest story of the day, and it actually stems from a book review. This is, uh, this was one of the most easily predictable problems. And from the time that COVID hit and we started shutting down schools, anybody who pays attention to education issues could tell you that getting rid of face-to-face education was going to cause a major problem in education. Now, Mary Catherine Ham is a conservative writer, and over at the website Reason, she has a review of the book, The Stolen Here, by NPR education reporter Anya Kamenetz. The book, according to Ham, acknowledges that COVID's policies' effects on education went underreported by, by the media. And uh, Kamenetz basically says, "Yeah, we we should have been louder on this." Uh, in in one interview, uh, these stories of American families juggling loss of routine, childcare, therapy services, and more are the most worthwhile part of the book. This is according to Ham. Their stories were always important, and as Kamenetz belatedly notes, predictable. Jonah in San Francisco, diagnosed with autism, became violent after hours of school screen time while the city closed the skate park he frequented. Alexis in Hawaii, a nonverbal child who regressed into diapers when deprived of in-person services. Kamla, who was removed from his family's home after allegations of abuse and neglect, all predictable. It seemed like in depraved indifference to child's welfare commitments, rights in 2022. And yes, indeed it did. Now, if you'll note, early this month, we had positive news locally. Lafayette Parish saw improvement in LEAP scores from the 2021 school year to the 21-22 school year, though the district is still seeing the effect of the brief interruption caused by the pandemic. This over at the advertiser from the beginning of the month, Lafayette Parish school system ranked. First among the six districts in the state with 30,000 or more students for improving the percentage of students in grades three through nine who achieved mastery or higher on the tests. Two LPSS schools were specifically recognized by the Louisiana Department of Education for their scores. Early College Academy ranked in the top 10 of all Louisiana schools for the percentage of students scoring mastery or above. And Myrtle Place Elementary was the best in state for year to year improvement. LPSS had a very, very good showing in the LEAP test, getting students from that interruption in the 2019-2020 school year through the 20-21 school year and through the 21-22 school year, largely because LPSS did as much as they could to prevent massive school closures. There was A couple of, there were a couple of brief um, school closures. Everything switched to virtual for a couple of schools. But, you know, we went through three quarters of a year with hybrid instruction and that switched to full on instruction. So kids were never out of school full time in Lafayette like they were in other places. And Lafayette did a very good job of trying to make the COVID policies as minimally intrusive as possible. But look what happened across the rest of the country. Schools and school systems and state education systems were shut down entirely. We have evidence that the national teachers unions were working with the Biden administration, crafting the wording that they would use in encouraging schools and school systems to stay shut down. And all of this, all of these shutdowns, all of this panic over COVID in schools all came about because of fear and not the data. The data very clearly showed, and to an extent still does show, that kids in school are less likely to get COVID, although they are getting it at a higher rate now that the virus has mutated. But especially at the beginning, kids were less likely to get COVID and less likely to spread it around. To date, there is no evidence of a mass spreader event at any school that was open where a case of COVID might have been found. Most of the COVID policies really did help with that. Most of the school policies said hey, if you get COVID, you stay home. Everybody else, life goes on as normal. But LPSS kept life as normal as possible in New York, in California, in other coastal democratic states where they wanted to flaunt the authority they had in shutting things down to keep everyone safe. There were massive, massive losses. 232 1542. More on this when we come back after the break. I want to continue talking about this and how it's driving the midterm elections. We'll have that and more here on The Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to The Joe Cunningham Show here on uh, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Again, 232 1542 if you want to be part of the conversation. Now, again, uh, there's a book out by NPR education reporter Anya Kamenetz. The book is called The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. And one of the key admissions of the book is that in her own words in an interview, this reporter, it was all too easy to predict. So we could have been a lot louder. And Mary Catherine Hamm, who is a conservative writer, pins a fantastic, although horrifying review of the book. She refers to the stories that parents in Facebook groups and school board Zoom meetings were desperately telling their local bureaucrats and teachers unions as they fought to get schools opened. For their efforts, these parents, according to Ham, were called heartless, ignorant and elitist. The Department of Justice famously sent a memo pegging vociferous activism as worthy of investigation. A school board member in Alexandria, Virginia, whose tone was typical of the overwrought official response, asked parents, do you want your child to be alive or do you want your child to be educated? The Chicago's teachers union tweeted and later deleted that the fight for school openings was rooted in sexism, racism and misogyny, even as parents rightly argue that school closures were widening all of the gaps the same set claims to care about between white students and minorities, rich and poor. Those who had or made the resources and time to fight were reviled as privileged yoga moms who wanted their babysitters back. This is all true. Every claim she's putting in here is absolutely true. The teachers unions, the Democrats, the governments, the public education system across the country shut down education with no data to back up that it was necessary and then blamed parents when, they're, when the parents were fighting to get their kids back in schools because their kids were losing so much educational content and quality. You cannot sit behind a computer screen for eight hours and learn. You can't do it. You cannot, under any circumstances, expect a class to get the most out of the content. When you're doing it all through a screen, you cannot do it. Again, here locally, we were lucky. We had a school system that, despite the loud protestations of a lot of the teachers in the community, many of whom are friends of mine. All of those teachers and all the teachers unions and all of those people who were scared of COVID-19 all voiced fear-based opinions rather than looking at the actual data. The data did show and has always shown that at the height of the pandemic in the country, there was no threat to schools to children in schools they were not getting the virus if they did the symptoms were mild many of the youngest children could not even carry or shed the necessary virus load to be contagious over and over again the science proved all of that but in an effort to exert control where they felt they were losing it the schools and the teachers unions had everything shut down And kids were forced to learn behind a computer screen for eight hours a day. And as a result, even the best students struggled. But those most in need of assistance, those with speech and uh, speech problems or or problems uh, verbalizing, kids who are on the autism spectrum, kids who need extra assistance because of uh, deficiencies in reading or math or anything like that. All of these kids who need the extra help, who need the one-on-one time, they couldn't get it. They were isolated from all that. I am fairly shocked that we haven't seen a major class action lawsuit for parents of kids who need individualized education plans and special education kids for just how much was taken away from their children because they did not have the academic support they needed to be successful in school. And now we have throughout the country we've seen the stories what school sto- scores look like in other parts of the country where they what they look like here what they look like in other parts of the state. We know what these policies did to our students. We know what these policies were capable. We knew from the start what these policies were capable of. And this book, The Stolen Year, the title gives it away. There was a crime committed. Something was taken from students across the country. But what the book fails to do is name a culprit. The book never actually says who's at fault here. But we know, we know that the teachers unions were working with the CDC and the NIH to craft the language necessary to encourage schools to stay closed. We know that the unions talked with the Department of Justice and the Department of Justice then sent out a memo say, suggesting that parents who are getting active in the school systems should be investigated. We know that the people responsible for this are the people who routinely run our education system, and that's why it's going to have such a big effect on the midterms. 232-1542, we're going to take our bottom of the hour news break. When we come back, we've got some more stories to get to here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation, you can also go ahead and send a message to the app chat. If you're listening through the k app, you can always reach out to the show from there. And if you're active on social media, Joe, uh, uh, Joe uh, P. Cunningham on Twitter and facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham show, you can reach me there as well. To to finish up uh, on the on the school thing and the COVID thing, this uh, this is why. There are so many parents, particularly suburban parents and suburban moms, who are very active this midterm cycle. The education system is kind of in turmoil right now between the activism of the very woke left and lingering resentment over the uh, over the COVID closures and the lack of access that kids had to education and the proper tools for learning and everything like that, a lot of parents are very, very motivated in places they wouldn't normalize be, uh, normally be very, very motivated. Again, a lot of suburban moms are actually trending toward the Republicans right now. A lot of uh, women of color, mothers who are women of color, are trending toward the white, the 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 right, Hispanic voters, uh, black voters, trending to the right, white moms, trending to the right. Joe Biden and the Democrats are losing in a lot of demographic areas, and education is playing a big role in that. And I've I've maintained for years, and the I think I want to say I've I've been on the air here at KPEL in some form or another, whether it's coming in a winging at Wednesdays, whether it's just doing little call-ins with, with Bernie in the mornings for Acadia's Morning News, whatever. I've been saying for a while now that the biggest inroad that the Republican Party has into minority communities is through education. And we're seeing it right now. And we're going to continue seeing it, but that is one of the reasons, I think, that Joe Biden is now planning to move ahead with this idea to cancel student loans. This is probably... Uh, a mistake. Well, actually, not probably. I know it is a mistake, but I also know that the polling must be absolutely horrendous internally at the White House if they're visiting this old uh, idea again. Now, several months ago, it became clear through some reporting that people like Stacey Abrams are out there pushing this idea on the White House that they need to they need to go ahead and forgive student loan debt. The problem is forgiving student loan debt only really helps the rich. Uh, There is, I forget, this was a column that was written at the Washington Post. Such a policy would, perhaps counterintuitively, give the biggest benefit to those with high incomes. That's partly because lower income people are less likely to have gone to college And additionally, many borrowers with the largest loan balances attended graduate and professional programs, medical business law school that led to higher earnings. A recent study from economists Sylvan Catherine and Konstantin Yanelis found that student loan forgiveness of up to $50,000 for every borrower would work out to an average of $700 for people in the bottom income percent and nearly $5,000 for those in the top percent. In other words, it does not benefit the middle and lower class like they claim. So what does the left want? The left wants more student loan forgiveness. Why? Because $10,000 in student loan forgiveness is actually structural racism. I kid you not. From activist Nina Turner. Canceling $10,000 in student debt when the average white borrower is $12,000 in debt while black women hold an average of over $52,000 isn't just unacceptable, it's structural racism. That's right. In the land of everything I don't like is racist, forgiving student loan debt up to $10,000 is racist because it's not enough. And I'm sorry. Sorry. But you can look at the data, you can see that the rich, the higher earning folks who not only went to undergrad and racked up some student loan debt, but then went to postgraduate programs, got a master's degree, got a doctoral degree, whatever other degrees they needed, went to medical school, went to law school, whatever, they have a higher student loan debt. Whereas people in middle and lower class groups, they went and got their undergrads. Sometimes they didn't go at all. They went to a technical or vocational college or a community college, got the skills they needed, got out into the workforce, and are doing okay for themselves. They're not rich. They're not earning an extraordinary amount of money by and large. But this forgiveness wouldn't help them. Who would it help? The progressive, overly uh, credentialed, doctorate holders. That's it. But at this point, along with the climate change bill, this is just another stunt to keep the base happy rather than work on passing any sort of policy that would do anything to actually help those in need. Now, this Nina Turner, this activist also tried to point out the other day on social media that no Taxpayers don't pay for the student loan forgiveness because the loans are held by the government. If you understand why that's a problem, congratulations. You know more about how government works than this person who probably has a lot in student loan debt or had a lot at one point and is an activist trying to call everything racism. Yes, the taxpayers are on the hook for forgiving student loans because the government is paid for by the taxpayers. And so it's your taxpayer money that will go into forgiving these loans. As long as people, activists on either side, but particularly the left, pretend that the government is like some building that's walking around and doing things and it's not actually a group of people funded by the rest of us, there will always be a lack of common sense in the policies that they're pushing. So once again, student loan debt, forgiving any portion of it, only benefits those with higher incomes. It does not help the middle or lower class because they are not the ones who have amassed a massive college student loan debt because they just went for an undergrad degree. Many pay their own way. Many are paying smaller amounts. Whereas the people with the most degrees who have the most time spent in school will, can, will have much higher student loan bills. But those are the ones who vote Democrat and have the loudest voices. But you and I will be on the hook for the bill as we always are, to help these high-income earners take $10,000 off their $50,000, $60,000, $90,000 uh, student loan bills. Is it any wonder that so many people are fleeing the Democrats because the Democrats are doing only what makes the loudest voices of their base happy? And they're not worried about actually fixing the problems that are affecting you and me. I hate to say the phrase again, but once again, the student loan debt, forgiving that, is not a kitchen table issue for the vast majority of Americans. Yes, there are a lot of Americans who still are paying student loans. But the vast majority of Americans aren't worried about those loans so much as they're worried about their grocery bill and their gas bill and their energy bill. 232-1542, when we come back, some local news. A new report is out and is casting more aspersions on Josh Guillory's side gigs. We'll talk about that and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL. Again, 232-1542. If you want to be part of the conversation, you can also check us out on the KPL app chat. Just send a message through there. Reach me on Twitter at Joe P Cunningham. Or Facebook.com/slash Joe Cunningham Show. All right, so another news story is out about Josh Gillery and one of his side jobs. Andrew Capps over at the Daily Advertiser has a story. Came out eight o'clock last night. Um, the first term mayor was under pressure to close his law practice after winning the election in November 2020, uh, 2019 since Lafayette's Home Rules Charter prohibits mayor presence from any activity related to local government business that would interfere with or detract from the performance of duties. Instead, Capps writes, he launched a new firm, Acadiana Family Law, shortly after winning and moved the location of his old firm, the Law Office of Joshua S. Esquilary, to a different office. Now, according to this story, while he was in rehab, he was apparently working for some clients under this law practice. He filed a suit to expunge a client's 2014 arrest from his record. Uh, the suit was filed on uh, August 11th. The day Guillory said he returned from rehab for alcoholism and PTSD. Uh, according to records, he has also apparently worked on at least one succession case And so this is another story that's out and and I wrote it up. It's up on KPL965.com, just kind of briefly explaining it. And that the issue here isn't so much that he's got this side gig, but in the advertiser story that the problem is that this law practice hasn't been disclosed to the Louisiana Board of Ethics. Uh, According to the story for public offices like Guillory's, officials are required to list any businesses they and their spouse own a combined 10% or more of as well as any income they receive from those businesses on their financial disclosures. There are a lot of stories that have been coming out uh, about Josh Guillory's different side jobs. He's, he's, he teaches classes at UL. There is the construction. Uh, what, what, how do you phrase it on uh, Lafayette live last week? uh yeah rental. equipment rental um and now and there's the the law practice and everything like that and a lot is being made of this and i'm i'm not you know i'm, I'm not here to cast any aspersions i'm reporting that news as it comes out i i know andrew at the advertiser andrew's a good reporter i like him I don't know, you know, how far to go into this story. I know that uh, Guillory has in the past talked about sensationalist reporting, uh, and oftentimes that that kind of, that that's more reference to, I think, the current than it is the advertiser. But there are a lot of stories out there. And Guillory is going to continue to have to answer questions about that or dodge them, as as is his freedom to do. But we are probably going to see more of this as we go forward. I mean, we're getting into an election year. There is a reason that these stories are coming out right now. You know, the other morning, Guillory said, absolutely, he's going to run for re-election in 2023. But these stories coming out, are meant to discourage people away from Guillory, meant to cast a shadow, cast some doubt on Guillory, whether intentional or not, that's what they do. And it will give ammunition to whoever wants to come up and run against Guillory in 2023. From a purely political position here, not saying anything one way or the other, because you guys know I, I like to look at the politics and the political strategy behind an issue, from purely the politics of it, it does cause Guillory to be on some questionable ground. When you flood the zone with negative stories, you can reduce the approval number. I mean, look what happened to Donald Trump in 2020. All the negative stories about COVID, uh, you know, at that point, five years worth of negative stories from the media on everything Trump touched that can absolutely have an impact on somebody's reelection chances. And frankly, I think the Guillory administration needs to find a way to give some clear answers, to push back on these stories without being outright dismissive, but to push back on the narrative. Um, You know, Interestingly, on a similar note, Ron DeSantis is up for reelection in Florida, and Ron DeSantis has had a similar problem. He's had years and years of negative news stories, and his way of combating it has just been to come directly back at the press with the facts to tell the press what they're getting wrong and how they're getting it wrong. I think a similar strategy is not a bad strategy for Guillory and his administration, but he's got to work at it. He's got to get there but i think it is entirely possible but these kinds of stories are interesting to me because there are so many and when there are so many of these types of stories out there there's there's two things happening one there's a there there in order you know to paraphrase Barack Obama or two somebody really 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 wants you to think there's a there there and there's one person there's a group of people that are gathered together to try to make this as bad for Gillery as possible to either try to scare him out of running for re-election or to empower somebody else to run against him and to try to take that position of power away from him again this is not a judgment on Gillery it's not a judgment on the reporter again i like andrew caps he is a solid reporter He can break down city records and information better than most people I know. This isn't about either of them. It's not even about the current. This is simply the politics of the situation. Somebody wants there to be a there. Somebody wants there to be an issue that somebody else can capitalize on. Don't know who, don't know why, but this information is coming from somewhere. So we do have to pay attention to that. Now, before I go, there is something I want to tell you guys real quick. If you are a Raging Cajuns fan, you can win a tailgating party for 50 at the Cajuns homecoming game from Fezzo Seafood and Steakhouse Oyster Bar and Catering, including the use of a giant tent, tables, chairs and plenty of food and drinks. All you have to do is go to KPL965.com. You can enter to win there. You can win a tailgating party for 50 at the Cajuns' homecoming game from Fizos. Be sure you go and check that out. I'm going to go ahead and take a few minutes of a break, and then we'll come back here on the Joe Cunningham uh, – not the Joe Cunningham Show – Offsides. Mark will be sitting across from me, go over some more of the topics of the day. He'll be filling in for Shannon. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter at JoePCunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe P. Cunningham Show, and check out the podcast version of the show wherever you get your podcasts – Tune in. Offsides is next. I'll talk to you guys again real soon here on News Talk 96.5 KPL.